Welcome to Optivate, a podcast for mobile marketers brought to you by Remerge. Take a short break from your screen and listen to what's working in mobile marketing and what's not, straight from the people who are doing it now. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hey everyone, you are tuned in to yet another episode of the Aptivate podcast brought to you by Remerge. I am your host today, Tommy. I'm laughing because that was like the most monotonous intro, but here we are. It's too late to turn back the hands of time. We're in it. It was a shitty intro and we're going to push forward. Thankfully, I don't have a shitty guest today. I have quite the opposite. I have a fantastic guest on the line with me today. Someone who I've spoken to on a few occasions and has an extensive breadth of knowledge as it's related to the marketing and advertising industry. And generally speaking on this podcast, we talk to mobile marketers predominantly, if not, not only, but predominantly mobile marketers. And today I have someone who has a knowledge that spans beyond mobile, which I'm really interested in. And I'm really eager to learn about her vantage point, her insights. So without further ado, today's guest is Sarah Polly, who is the Senior Director of Marketing Technology at Hearts and Science. Sarah, what's up? Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, good. I'm tired. I was in a meeting on Monday or Tuesday, one of those days, and I was talking to someone and they are like, I'm so tired because of the time change. Yeah. Like, what the hell are you talking about? And I had no idea that it was daylight savings. And then it hit me right there because the whole weekend I was like, why is my damn dog waking up straight up an hour earlier than he always does? He's getting mm-hmm. me at like 5, 50, 6 a.m. And I was like, is something wrong with him? And it's daylight saving. So yeah. we're getting into it. Gets it gets us all. It does. It sure does. How's life for you? How's Q4 going so far? Q4 is good. It's busy. We'll wrap up with a busy, strong year. I think we can say 2021 was better than 2020, which leads us to hope that 2022 is even better. <laughs> Isn't it crazy that 2021 is like over? Yeah. My head is like, it's still 2020 for what I think it was such an impactful, huge year that it's yeah. to recognize that it was over a year ago and like in a month, which is bonkers. Yeah, I agree. Sometimes I'm like, wait, we're in 21, but I feel like that just happened a few months ago. I know. 2021 just absolutely blasted by, but we're here to see another day, thankfully, in another year. Really excited. You're dialing in based out of where? Right now, I am remote in North Carolina, but I am based out of New York City. It's nice in the winter because the temperatures are much nicer and higher than in New York, though I think the temperature zone is about the same this week. So I know New Yorkers are enjoying the warmer weather than usual. And this was a COVID move? Yeah, this is just temporary. Yeah. Was it a hard thing for you to do? Do you have roots in North Carolina to some degree? Yes. I grew up in North Carolina. I decided to do a road trip the beginning of this year. So I leased out the rest of my apartment last December. So I moved in with my parents. Interesting, live with your parents as an adult. And April through early July, I did a road trip through the U.S. So I drove out west. I started in Sedona, went all the way up to Montana, over to Colorado, all really around the national parks, all while working. This was not like a three-month hiatus. Thankfully for Airbnbs to get the Wi-Fi, to be able to seamlessly work, but then also get to spend so much time in Mother Nature, which is beyond healing than than I ever knew before. 
and just see the beautiful landscapes that we have here. We're so lucky to have these national parks because a lot of countries don't have these types of things. They are the most impressive. I haven't been to a ton. I have been to Glacier. Mm, Haven't been there. That's top of my next list. That was top five most extraordinary things, probably top three most extraordinary things I've ever seen in my life. It was absolutely wild. And I went with a really close friend of mine who was a forest firefighter in Montana. And he was able to explain, it was really cool because he was able to explain to me the entire like ecology of the trees in particular that are in Glacier. It was just a mind-blowing experience. Out of your road trip though, what was the place you loved the most? Grand Teton National Park, hands down my favorite. It is so beautiful. I loved the fact that you could see the mountain range from almost anywhere where you were. We stayed in Coulter Bay, which is one of the the areas you can stay in in the park. And it just felt like adult summer camp. You had this cabin. It just had a bathroom and beds. And you went to the local shop to get mini appetizers for dinner or the pizza place. But you could sit on a beach that was of rocks. But warm rocks feel really nice. When you're laying on the beach on your back, or you could kayak or rent a boat to go on the lakes. So yeah, it was just really fun. And then my second was hiking into the Grand Canyon. It's like unreal. It's just crazy, the expansiveness of it. And when you start to get in and down, you're just like, whoa. And then when you come back up and you look down at different parts, it was just like, wow, I was like in there, six miles down in there. So highly recommend it. Yeah, it's six miles down. Oh my God. Yeah. Whoa. Sorry, that's deep. So you have to remember, you have to go six miles back up, (laughs) which usually when you hike, you go up and then come down. So it's a little interesting to go down and then come up. up. It is definitely, it is strenuous. It's mentally tolling at the end when you're just going back and forth trying to come up. But it is so worth it. And it was so rewarding. That's amazing. I have to ask them the question, because you've given us two places that you really liked. What was maybe a place that you didn't like at all? I uh, didn't love Yellowstone. Interesting. And that's a little controversial because people are like, oh, it's the most amazing place. It's very different. The geology is very different. But for me, I like to hike and be in the woods and lakes. And that's not really there in Yellowstone. A geyser too, cool. A hot spring, cool. But to spend days looking, to me, it was like the same thing over and over. Just isn't my cup of tea. Geysers don't do it for Sarah. You heard it here (laughs) on the Activate podcast. This podcast is not supposed to be about national parks, though. I would love to talk about national parks. It would be healthier for us generally. But (laughs) all that being said, tell us about yourself. Give us a rundown of your background and where you are today. Yeah, so I have been in digital media for 10 years, which is crazy. I started out at the Washington Post in D.C. And so I have a long-term love for journalism. So I worked on the digital side. I was not a journalist. (laughs) I didn't talk to the journalists, even though some of them I would have loved to have met. But I did ad trafficking. So essentially the orders that agencies send over to publishers and partners, I would execute them. That's where I kind of learned the back end of the ecosystem, how tags work, how they fire on websites, what we're tracking, what we can't track. And through five years there, I was just looking for the next thing. And Hearts and Science had been created at that point. It was about six months old. So I joined Hearts and Science five years ago. 
on our MarTech team. And so there it's really diving deep into the landscape <laughs> of MarTech, which has like over 7,000 partners, but helping our clients distill those down. Who are the big players? What are enterprise-wide? How can they help you? Calling out the red flags, sniff test, especially with the salespeople versus the product people. And what's best for their business? And so today we're just really, really focused on how the industry is drastically changing. It's been changing since 2017, and it is going to continue for the next couple of years. The biggest thing is Chrome finally going to deprecate their pretty cookies by the end of 2023. And so that really shakes up. I think cookies have been the backbone of the internet since 1996, <laughs> essentially when it started. So it's a big shakeup. And I think it's a good shakeup. But we're in that toddler growing phase of like, well, what do we do now? And, and how do we figure it out? Yeah, there's so much there. So I promise I'm going to dive into the real subject stuff, the Chrome stuff and all that with you in a moment. I didn't realize Hearts of Science was that young, I guess you could say. Yeah. And you joined when they were six months old. I'm guessing at that point, I don't know how many people do you know? Oh, we had a couple hundred. We had the AT&T account and P&G. So we had two very large accounts. So the agency size was quite large for just two that's accounts. Six months old. That's for six months. Yeah. That's mind boggling. Today, you're over a thousand people though. And you've yeah. been there a while. So I have what's it been like to experience that growth firsthand? And what would you attribute it to? Why do you think people love working with you all? It's been really cool. It was startup slash agency. It was my first time uh, and only time working at an agency. And so it was neat to be on the other side. And yes, we're focused on media, but it started out about putting data first. So when Scott Hagedorn founded Hearts and Science, it was about using data to drive decisions, to drive media planning, which wasn't the norm then. It's very much the norm today, but not so much then. Technology and data really was helping us drive decisions. They weren't just picking the same publishers to run media on because we did that before. It was really like, okay, but where's the audience? And how do we talk to that audience? And that's where the hearts and science name came from. The science is working with the data. The hearts is communicating with the user one-to-one. So I think a lot of brands really liked that different perspective. And on the cutting edge at that time, it's the people at hearts and science. I mean, the talent is amazing. It's people are so smart. Everyone's looking to how do we push the envelope? How do we do something different? How do we figure this out? It's just really wonderful to see. And now we have grown, we have over 20 clients, constantly pitching new business. And while clients have do come and go, we've been able to really spread our wings and have various different verticals besides just those two big ones to start with. That's, it's really awesome. Congrats to you. And Thanks. Yeah. Putting a fair amount of time there. And it's really, it's got to be rewarding to see a startup grow in that way. It's got to yeah. be awesome to be a part of it really the whole way through. So that's amazing. It's really, really cool. What got you into marketing technology? Because you were in ad trafficking at Washington Post. My guess is when you started at Hearts and Science, maybe it was somewhat Mar- MarTech, but I imagine over the course of your tenure there, it evolved to some degree. So what about it did you find interesting and still find interesting? Constantly learning. First, it was much more of the ad tech space. Your campaign manager, your ad servers. I spent my first couple of years focused on brand safety. The YouTube incidents with a very large client took a lot of time, which was really interesting because you were like really dove into the back end of the tech. 
And so after being at the Washington Post, I really loved talking to the different vendors and understanding what they did. And so I was like, oh, maybe I'll go to a tech vendor. And then when I learned about this opportunity and the more I learned about it, I was like, oh, but I can work with a lot of different vendors and get to know a lot of different vendors and see how all these like pieces come together or how we have to fit some pieces together and how do you get a square into a round hole in situations. So just the constant learning and what's next. Every month is not the same and <laughs> something changes, whether it's a new law, a new product release, a new Apple makes a change, Google makes an announcement, Facebook makes an announcement, Amazon makes an announcement. So it really just keeps me on my toes and constantly learning. And that's what keeps me engaged and I find exciting and why I'm still doing it. Amazing. The word change has come up a lot as you were describing what you find interesting about your role today. And you alluded, not alluded, you spoke earlier about some of the massive changes that are hitting the advertising industry. Specifically, you had mentioned Chrome. Yeah. Tell us what's happening to Chrome. I could imagine the vast, vast majority of the listeners on this podcast know, but because we want to be fair, let's talk about it anyways. So tell me what's happening with Chrome. Yes. So Google Chrome announced January of 2020, which talking about earlier, I was like, oh, that was just this year. And it's like, that that was almost two years ago at this point. But January 2020, Google announced that they had plans to phase out third-party cookies within two years. So which would have put it in 2022. So this was kind of like the final nail in the coffin for third-party cookies. Apple, Safari, Mozilla, Firefox, that was all done by 2018. So third-party cookies have been going away for a while. They've really slowly crumbled. But with Chrome, the next largest browser share, not going to support this soon, really just puts the end to it. So in 2018, advertisers could just run on Chrome and business looked a little as usual and there weren't as many impacts. But now you you don't have another alternative. We have to find a new solution. So Chrome is not going to support third-party cookies now by the end of 2023. So it was... June of this year that they came out and said, hey, here's the new timeline. It is 2023. So they are building various APIs, which they are calling the Privacy Sandbox. It's going to be various APIs that actually power Chrome. And the goal is to keep everything on the browser. No cookies, not dropping it on a computer or leaning on any outside technology to do any tracking, measurement, attribution. So Chrome is actively building these APIs. And we should start to see them being released towards the end of next year. So really 2023 for advertisers will be the big year of understanding these APIs. What do they look like? What are the ones for targeting? What is for retargeting? What is for measurement and testing to see what they look like against what we have today and determining how we want to proceed in the future? That's a lot. It's a massive change. It's a massive change, yes. We're very familiar in the app ecosystem as related to the ATT prop from iOS and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. What's different here is that there is a precedent for some of this to a degree in that Safari and Mozilla, these changes happened in 2018, as you mentioned, right? Well, my question is for you then is, did you see at that time, were marketers practicing avoidance behavior once those changes happened and just shifting their spend towards Chrome? Or have you seen the industry actively working towards solutions from 2018 to maybe present? I'd say it's more of the first people just, you could easily target away. Okay, we'll just target Chrome. We can get view-through conversions. We can get click-through conversions for whatever look-back window we want. When Apple made these changes to WebKit, which is what powers 
Safari and Mozilla and maybe a couple other smaller browsers. The changes just happened. Similar to what Apple does for the app changes, like it just happens. Pros and cons to just having the Band-Aid ripped off where we're doing this like slow roll with Chrome and there's advantages and disadvantages to both ways. But yes, there was a precedence already. And so Safari, Firefox accounts for about 40%. We don't have cookies for about 40% of browsers. And then you've got some of the folks that are using DuckDuckGo or other smaller browsers that just have eliminated any kind of tracking whatsoever. And then you have Chrome. So it was easy for advertisers to very quickly just hit target Chrome and move on and not really have to find solutions. The disadvantage of doing that was, well, users are still using Safari and it's still valuable. The conversions still happen even if we don't get that cookie drop or we don't see that reporting in a UI. So the CPMs for Safari drastically went down. So smart advertisers, and we did this with our clients, you could take what was happening in Chrome, understand your audiences, and use that to then go and target Safari and find similar audiences, take advantage of that CPM decrease, and still reach these users instead of just completely ignoring those people. Similar to what's happening today with iOS apps and Android, Android, you're still getting all the reporting. So people are like, ah, we'll just use Android. And that's not the smartest tactic because we know that iOS users convert more in-app. They spend more in-app. And you don't want to lose those people. I mean, the conversions are still happening. But if you're moving away from even attempting to reach those folks, you could actually lose true conversions because you're not even giving them the opportunity to do that. So it's interesting the parallels between the browser world and the app world. The browser world, the changes happened much slower and over the course of several years, and the apps just happened much faster. (laughs) But there's definitely the parallel of what's happening. Apple tends to go first, happens pretty quickly. And then Google, whether that's Android or Chrome in this instance, tend to follow behind. Damn. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. And yeah, it is analogous to what we see in in the apps. It's like looking in a mirror in some ways, because you mentioned Mm -hmm. CPM rates and Safari drop. CPM rates on iOS for app traffic today are 60% lower than they were prior to the ATT prompt being rolled out. So the changes aren't different. They are, but obviously like the approach is not that different than what our food done because we've obviously seen across the industry, advertisers shifting spend to Android devices. Yeah. Thing, right. More than ever before. And yeah, it's crazy. So we talk about Safari and Firefox and how there were still ways to take advantage of those lower CPMs for your clients. Mm-hmm. Just real quick, is it possible to measure the impact of those campaigns? Or like, what does that process look like? Or are you using proxies at that point to understand how effective your efforts are there? It would have to be proxies. Yeah. There is no tracking. You get clicks for 24-hour window. Could work for some brands. Doesn't work for most brands, most people, unless you're just like click happy and you're in the mood to spend some money. Usually the window is more than that 24 hours. So very little information has to be proxied. And that's why it's really important for brands to focus on the data they collect on their site and on their apps, because that is the new gold. It's so important for them to have more of that first party data collection to know what's happening, where are the conversions happening, when are they happening, where are people falling off? Because we're going to need to use that information to guide us in the future as we can't rely on an outside party to give us as much information. Yeah. 
So the last shoe is going to drop in 2023. How do you interface with your partners today? Can you guide them through what's about to happen? I guess even a more pointed question. What are smart marketers doing? And how are you bringing them there today? Smart marketers are starting now. It was a relief that Google Chrome announced, hey, it's not 22, because it was rumored it was the first half of 22. And then maybe at the end of 22, it was like, never really sure when in 22 it was going to happen. But getting that more detailed timeline from Chrome about, hey, we're going to send this out the end of 22, more for publishers and the tech companies to integrate first half of 2023. It's really when the whole ecosystem can start to test and explore, give feedback. And then we're going to phase it out towards the end of 2023. So that was like really nice to have some clarity and a breathing room. It felt like it should have been a holiday for an event the day that that announcement came out because it was just like, oh. And some marketers are like, okay, well, we'll just worry about that later. And you really can't worry about it later because while we're not necessarily feeling major impacts today, things are changing, but the clock is ticking. And what we're finding is technologies have to get updated. So there aren't going to be updates needed for your TMS for Adobe and Google. And there might be Google has released a new analytics tool to properly account for all of these things. So there's things that need to get up leveled at like the baseline for us to do things in the future. And so what we've done at Omnicom, and I lead this at Hearts as well, is we've developed a future signals task force. So it's across all the Omnicom agencies globally and periodically recurring basis to our clients and to our internal teams, we run through all of these different changes. What is happening? What is this being? What can you do now? What is our stance? And so that, I think that's been really helpful for folks. There's a dedicated space, dedicated slides, same communication across agencies to clients, and it helps us not have to recreate content all the time. And we have timelines to remind people of, okay, this is when this happened and what's a cookie, what's not a cookie, what's a first-party cookie, what's a third-party cookie, like, from very basic stuff to the most complicated. So smart advertisers are having these active conversations with us. What are we doing? We're going to audit their tech stack. We're going to audit how they're collecting cookies, what's relying on cookies so that we can get to potentially an impact. eMarketer right now says most brands are on average, 50% of digital ad spend is on Google and Facebook. They are both impacted by all of these changes. Levels of impact may vary. Like Facebook is definitely more impacted by the ATT prompt. Google has to walk a fine line of the changes between Chrome and then their advertising business, but there's going to be changes. So the level of, of impact will vary, but the whole ecosystem is being impacted by this. Brands, publishers, social media, data companies, tech companies. I was reading something recently and... I think they estimated like $10 billion revenue loss for publishers when this change happens. Like we're talking significant money is impacted by this. And so the challenge is, is how do we get that down to an impact for our clients? Like how can I give them an estimate of revenue that's being impacted? So if you think about it, Google, Facebook, 50%, you could be losing significant double digits revenue. 50% of your digital ad spend may not be as effective and we may not be able to tie it to that ROI. Conversions are still happening, but we may not easily be able to say this is how they got there. The CTV ad uh, led to it. The search ad helped. The email marketing helped. So that customer journey gets a little hairy. 
So after we get to an idea of where what is really impacted and what's the most impacted, then we're going to start to figure out, okay, how can we solve these gaps? If they have a lot of partners that rely on cookies, we need to find new partners to give them that information. So can we rely on more first-party data? Could we rely on the platform's data, so second-party data, Google's data, Hulu's data, Facebook's data, et cetera? And what third parties out there that are more PII-based or a durable ID-based that we can link to? Then there's te solutions to test. So right now, there's a couple solutions for the open web that we can test. Two, the big two biggest right now are Unified ID 2.0. This has been endorsed by Omnicom. This is hopefully a holistic solution for the open web. And this was powered by IAB, really being powered by Pram now to continue. Hopefully, it could be used in the app world as well because it's email-based, a hashed email. So in theory, there's potential for the app world, but right now it's the web space. And we can start to test that. Things are, for these solutions though, publishers have to adopt them. And I'm sure working with publishers, they are not quick to necessarily adopt these new technologies for advertising. Like they have to see the benefits as well. So while we're testing now, we need to be mindful that the full scale is not there yet. So we can start to get insights but it's not enough information to make a decision. And then in 2023, when these privacy sandbox APIs come out, one is Flock, federated learning of cohorts, aggregated browsers, which they're calling cohorts, Target. We'll be able to test those and then test them side by side to these open solutions, UID 2.0, the Ramp ID, ID5. I mean, there's like 80 IDs in the ecosystem you can use for bidding. So it's the Chrome solutions and these APIs are just specific to Chrome right now. Safari, Firefox, other browsers have not said yes to adopting these. So we're starting to really get our environments to be very siloed. Chrome, not Chrome, iOS, Android, linear, CTV. It's almost like we have to potentially go environment by environment. What is the solution? How are we going to reach consumers? How often can we reach them? What's the best measurement? So it's a lot of work to be done and a lot of unknowns. So it's really important to start now and not just be like, oh, we'll figure out in 2023. You can wait. But I think it's going to be probably really rough going into 2024, trying to plan when you haven't tested solutions and at least have an idea of how to continue moving forward. That was so much. My head's like spinning. <laughs> I'm like not envious of your job because I can't like, I just do performance marketing for apps and that's complicated enough for me but just the mention of ctv for example i was like oh god i didn't even think about like that and that's yep. your perspective is different than mine in the sense that you have to look at so much and you have to try to make it comprehensive for the marketer but it sounds like part of maybe what you're saying is that might not be possible to some degree right like these different places we might not be able to create this comprehensive strategy across all these platforms because the manner in which we leverage them is going to inherently change to some degree. Maybe that's accurate or maybe it's not what you're saying. Potentially. Yeah. We really don't know what's on the other side. I'm always a bit weary when vendors come in, they're like, this will solve cookie lists. I'm like, <laughs> it's not. And clients obviously love that because they want answers. They want solutions. And I want them to. I do. It's not so great going into meetings and be like, well, I actually don't really know. We believe in transparency at Hearts and Science. It's one of our six pillars. And I don't want clients 
thinking they can just use this one solution, spend the money financially, resource-wise, and then we have to go do something completely different in nine months, 18 months. And that's why it's really important that everybody is open and agile, which is very challenging. I acknowledge and recognize it's hard because it is moving so vast. And I feel like the biggest feedback I get this year is it's so much. I'm like, I know. And I'm trying to make it so simple, but it's also not simple information and how we're doing this. It's pretty powerful stuff. What does open and agile mean to you then? It means to listen, take the time to educate yourself, ask the questions. There are no stupid questions. Don't be embarrassed. As somebody that is eyeballed deep in this, I still have to check myself against team members. I'm like, is this right? Is this what they said? And things are literally changing sometimes day by day, week by week, month by month. So just because we know that vendor A is rolling out this API and this is how the recommended way to go about it doesn't mean that in a few months they actually change and they're like, this is a better way to do it. So we try to come to clients with solutions as firm as possible and say, hey, this is something to consider. You could do it now. Here are the benefits and the value we'd get, but we need to do it, have all this stuff in place by the first half of 2023. And then there's been times where we come back a couple months later and it's like, well, you still need to do that, but we have to implement it in a different way potentially. And so just being open and flexible and nimble with these, it's hard not to get frustrated. It feels like to me, open is like the biggest thing here. And that's Mm -hmm. part of that is the acceptance that it's never going to be the same as it was in the past, right? Exactly. Pushing to get to where we were in the past, it'll never work. The entire environment is different. And this is Mm -hmm. like, again, putting a square peg in a round hole. It's just, that's not how we function in the future, right? And how we, there's an entire paradigm shift that you need to be open to and need to be ready to accept. And the only way your business moves forward is by being open and accepting and ultimately experimenting and trying to figure out, okay, it's not what I'm used to, but yes. is there something I'm comfortable with, right? Or is there something that works for our business and gives us enough where we can make intelligent decisions? Exactly. Experimental is a great thing to add to being open and agile. And you're right. How the ecosystem works today is not how it's going to work in a couple of years. And it might even change a little bit after a couple of years after that as things start to shake out. It's like life pre-pandemic and life post-pandemic. If you want to relate it to your day-to-day, things are different. Our behaviors have changed as users. And that's what I think is so exciting and powerful about being in this industry and being in this role is at the end of the day, all of us consume this stuff. Mm-hmm. We're consuming those Instagram ads. We're consuming that Facebook targeting. We're consuming that CTV ad as we've moved away from linear into streaming. And so we have that perspective of being a consumer and knowing what we want and what we don't love about micro-targeting or banner pop-ups and all of that. So let's use that to influence to actually make it better for all of us. Consumers want transparency. They want to trust the brands. They want to feel like the brand is there and supporting them. Like, And the generational changes as well on how people are using technology, how often they're using technology, their perceptions on the world. And it's like this massive change going on. And all of this stuff is like 
interrelated, but it is so massive and it's so sometimes unfathomable in a sense. It's okay, I'm going to deal with it later. And I want to deal with it later sometimes too. Sometimes we hope that maybe the deadline will get pushed again. Sometimes it's like, please don't push the deadline again. Like we really just, we're ready to move forward. We're ready to move past the cookie world. We've been talking about cookies crumbling for at least five or six years. Just do it. Let's get to the new frontier. Are you super optimistic about the future? Do you feel like we're going to arrive at a much better place than we're at today ultimately? Yes. It's going to take some bumps. I think it's going to be bumpy for the first several years as we figure it out and we adjust to what we're used to having and we don't have particularly measurement and reporting wise or targeting wise. But yes, I think at the end, it'll be much better. Awesome. I feel like your clients must be extremely thankful for you because I, uh, <laughs> that was like, I'm blown away by the volume and the breadth of information that you and your position have to oversee. And I congratulated you on the growth of business, but another congratulations for like being able to speak about this in a really thoughtful and articulate way, because it is. Thank you. In some ways it's not for you, but for a lot of people, it's a mess, right? And it's crazy uncharted waters. You're obviously still learning a lot. We're all learning a lot, but I very genuinely appreciate your insights. I'm so happy we got to have you on this episode of the podcast. Yes, me too. That was awesome. I hope we can do another one. Yeah. Maybe there's a little more clarity in this. (laughs) advertising. Yeah. So we have a a little more of an idea of what's going on. So maybe 2023. Yeah. Not Not that I want want it to be two years. I hope we will talk many times before then. But yeah. Given how quickly 2021 went by, it's going to feel like tomorrow that is 2023. So I'm not too concerned, but we'll chat again. (laughs) It's going to be awesome. For our listeners, today's guest is Sarah Polly, who's a senior director of marketing technology at Hearts and Science. Sarah, thank you so very much for joining. Thank you, Tommy. Thanks for taking a break with us and listening to our weekly episode of Activate by Remerge. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. The more people you tell, the further we can spread these awesome mobile marketing insights. See you next week.